Hey everybody, welcome to the Afterward. I'm Dave Tish. You know, my mom was a kindergarten teacher when I was growing up, and before I entered even kindergarten, I think she took it as a real source of challenge and pride to ensure that her son, me, I learned how to read before I entered kindergarten, and that was a big thing for her. One of my first memories is going to the library with my mom. She would often take me. I had a canvas book bag I would sling over my shoulder and fill with books. Uh, it had a bear on it. The, it was a white book bag with a bear embroidered onto it or with a bear had a flower. I, that's all I remember. But it's, it's like this seared memory. My mom was really big on me learning. And when I was in first grade or maybe it was second, my, my parents got me this incredible gift. It was uh, a box of 12 books and they were all kind of in the same series. It was called Children's Illustrated Classics. Um, there was text on one page and like a picture on the other. Even to this day, I still love books that have text on one page and pictures every other page. That's that's awesome. And these were classic works of literature, kind of written in a first or second grade reading level. There's Robinson Crusoe and Great Expectations and The Count of Monte Cristo and Treasure Island, and they were amazing. There was also, I even remember there was a Edgar Allan Poe one, Tales of Terror. So I'm like, not exactly sure that's appropriate to show first graders Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, I don't. That seems kind of scary. But anyway, my favorite book, though, out of all of them, and they were all amazing. I mean, I still, I think that's probably where I, I had my love of reading and literature, that 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 fire that burns in me first stoked. But my favorite book out of all of them was, and they were all amazing, but my favorite one, the one that captured my attention and my imagination most as a young first or second grader, was a, a collection of old English myths and legends called the Tales of Robin Hood and, and his Band of Merry Men. And it was a compilation of these stories and legends that go all the way back to the 1300s. Um, they're, even, they're written down in the 1500s. They're written down in the 1700s. They go all the way back. And what captured me most about these stories was not just the characters, Robin Hood and Little John and Friar Tuck. Uh, it wasn't just the action, which, you know, Robin Hood would split an arrow in a, in a target contest. He would, you know, be such an amazing archer that he would split an arrow that hit the bullseye um, or he would shoot a rope from 500 yards. It, it, those are incredible stories of um, action and adventure. But what hit me the most and what I still remember was the setting. If you're familiar, maybe you're not, the setting of... Robin Hood is around the 1100s in England, and King Richard, the rightful king, King Richard, good King Richard, he's sometimes called, or King Richard the Lionhearted, he's gone. He's out of the country, ostensibly to, to, to lead a group of people to fight in the Crusades. And so he's gone, he's far away, and no one knows when he's going to come back. And in that absence, in the absence of good King Richard the Lionhearted, there's a power vacuum and his younger brother, Prince John, who is sometimes portrayed as stupid and incompetent and other times as evil, sometimes as both, he takes over the throne. And this is a very much a Mufasa scar kind of pride rock thing where the kingdom just crumbles into disarray because the leadership is so corrupt. And so Prince John brings about this destruction and this evil, and he's got his henchmen, like the sheriff of Nottingham, and they go around the countryside, and they go to the poor people, the poor villagers and the peasants, and they take from them extra taxes, not for public goods like universal health care or roads or something, but so they can just enrich their own lives. They can fatten up their own coffers. And so in the middle of this Robin Hood, that's the setting. The setting is that Robin Hood comes into this scenario, and he actually 
says, this is not the way that good King Richard the Lionheart, Robin Hood is actually loyal to good King Richard. Some, some of the legends say he actually fought alongside him. And so he's, Robin Hood is loyal to this king who was far away, but who is coming back. The point is that Robin Hood has a different set of values than Sheriff of Nottingham, a different set of values than Prince John, a different set of values because he serves a different king who has a different set of values, a different reign. And even as I think about that, I get really inspired because that's kind of a bit of the precursor to the story of Christianity. Jesus is in some ways like that Robin Hood. He represents a king and a kingdom with very different values than the current world that we find ourselves in. And he's not about power. Um, Jesus is not about comfort. You know, just like Robin Hood lived out in the forest. He didn't live in a palace. He lived in the forest with his men. Um, There's something revolutionary about what Jesus is doing. There's something revolutionary about his teaching. And in the Beatitudes, that's what I think about. I think about the revolutionary nature of the Beatitudes and how they reveal that Jesus is talking about a king and a kingdom that has a value system that's very different than the one we're in. And so we're going to stare. Steve Clifford is here with me. We're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's most famous set of teachings. And we're going to look at the first couple of verses, the Beatitudes, which talk about the kingdom values that Jesus is bringing into the world. So let's take a look. Steve and I are going to talk through those and let's dive right in. All right, so you've been without Dana now for how many days? Like a weeks? Oh, she got back last night though, but I, it was a seven days. Okay, so I was about ready to do an intervention because you without Dana for seven days. I was like, hey, Steve, you want to come over and watch the game? Are you? Are you? You got food, Steve? I can cook for you. Yeah, I eat poorly. <laughs> I, I just eat poorly. I eat fr- lots of frozen meals. You're like a dog. You just you lay down in the door and in the hallway and look at the door and <laughs> wait for the door I to sleep, open. I don't sleep good. Oh. So, <laughs> but she's back. So she's it's back. That's good. All right. Um, so we're in part two of the. Are we recording? Oh, we've been recording for. No. <laughs> I don't understand why that question. Not. <laughs> so we're in part two. This is kind of a part two of the Beatitudes. Last week we kind of did an intro, and I thought this week we kind of go through um, these values, um, these. Uh, articulations of the how do you describe the beatitudes somebody said hey what are the beatitudes because we said it's not a to-do list but uh how, how do you describe it it's not it's a declaration of the reality of the kingdom how the kingdom is how the kingdom is how, how how life is lived when you're in the kingdom when it's fully there and 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 i think it's pretty it's set apart from other things that jesus does because it's so um metered it's so blessed are the blessed yeah. are the blessed are the but when you look at the proverbs and um you know some of the wisdom literature that we have we see rabbis doing this all the time all the time and it's actually something that was probably very common and what freaked people out about Jesus was when he started teaching in parables not when he when, not when he taught with beatitudes i think that they were very comfortable with that and so i think he's doing a very Rabbi-ish Well, I mean, thing. think about scripture. Like Psalm 1 starts with blessed are. Blessed are. I mean, Psalm 119. Well, that happens like 26 or 30 times yeah. in Pro- in Psalms and Proverbs. Because and the authors of scripture are trying to say, here's what it means to live life with God, alongside God. Yeah. The uh, hard part is, is that then 
But you know, this the second week is okay. What do you just do if it's if it's a declaration of how the kingdom life is lived? It's not a to do list, but it is aspirational. I mean, it, it is something that you're going to strive. You want yeah. to be strive towards, I guess. Or? Yeah. There was a commentary. I'm going to read you a quote from Stanley. Um, how uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Howard Wass, and he's a commentator. He said this too often. These he's talking about the Beatitudes. And this was in the commentary that um, that I was looking at. Too often, these characteristics of the blessings in Christian history have been turned into ideals or virtues that we must strive to attain. Poor in spirit, mourning. When we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with God, which, of course, is precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying mm. to say. Rather, they're descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us we should try to be poor in spirit or mourning all the time or try to get yourself persecuted. He simply announces the great surprise that these people who are not significant or honored in their society are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be first among those led into God's kingdom. Yeah, and I I think that really catches some of it. Um, It's like um, must versus will, two Mm. four-letter words. What do you mean? You know, if I were to tell you, um, you must mourn, well, then now it's a requirement to get in. If I say you will mourn, it's a description of how you will, you know, exist in. Mm. So in the king- in the kingdom, which we know it's in the kingdom because it's bookended by the phrase, you know, the kingdom of heaven on both ends of it. So... I think what's happening is, is must you be poor in spirit? No, you just will be um, as you follow Christ. That's the work he will do in you. Yeah. Will you mourn? Must you mourn to get in? No, but you will. If you mourn, then this will happen. You'll yeah. be comforted. Uh, it's interesting also, like when you, you've done sermon series on the fruit of the spirit, I'm sure, in, in, in the past, and it's kind of hard to tease these individual ones out sometimes because you're like they're kind of uh the, the the correct word for this i learned is concatenated uh like a links of a chain they go together you you they're not really supposed to be they're more like a mosaic that you're supposed to look at and see a general picture and the picture mm. we're supposed to see is jesus uh and what kingdom life is like um so when you pull them apart sometimes uh it, you can lose something because they're kind they kind of go together obviously um so, but I thought for this, we'd pull them apart and just talk one, <laughs> one by one and then just see how they're related. So let's just start. Um, porn spirit, um, what are your thoughts on, on porn spirit? Um, as you explain to yourself in your own heart, what does it mean to be porn spirit? Uh, Matthew uses porn spirit. Luke simply says poor. So I think that that's interesting. There's some sort of, is it physical poverty? Is it Spiritual poverty. What does spiritual poverty even look like? How do you think about that? I, maybe um, it, when I think about it, I think about how you estimate your own spiritualness. Huh. Oh, that's um, good. I, I don't even know if that's a word, but I mean, if it's phrased right. But how you how you would estimate and see what you bring, what, you know, and that... The blessed comes from the recognition you don't bring much. Yeah. You know, you don't bring much. And sometimes when you're physically poor, that's a reminder, you know, that you don't have a whole lot. And so 
in the ancient world, you wouldn't have separated the two as much as we do. Um, we kind of have spiritual and physical, and I don't think in the ancient world they would have seen things like that. I, I, I think that's probably true, and certainly in the Eastern world, I think there's a difference there too in terms of how we would view wealth in the East and the West. Yeah, uh, one of the commentaries I was looking through said, Jesus is pronouncing a blessing on those empty of any spiritual resource, poor as they often were in material things as well. Um, so why is that a be- why is that a blessing? Because you are open to God, and or that's the best posture. Oh, by far the best posture. I guess the opposite of that would be thinking you really bring something to the kingdom, and you, God's really you, you will, and God are great. You will not seek a physician if you do not believe you are ill. Mm. You just won't. I yeah. mean, right? Yeah. Why would you? Um. So yeah, I th- I think it is the best. It is the proper recognition of where we are, and it is the it is that that drives us to it, and that is why I think, you know, Jesus said things like it's difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah, because you know they don't see their their need. Well, one of the things that's hard about money is money solves a lot of problems. You can solve a lot of your life's problems with money. Money is not evil. But you can't solve every problem. <laughs> it's the love of money that's evil. You're right. So I, you're that, right. Absolutely. That, so that's a that's a hard thing. Uh, next is mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, and, and I think um, all I, I it's the, a lot a lot of these, or at least some of them. You're like these are experiential for everyone. Everyone will mourn. I mean, the I guess you could somehow keep yourself from mourning if you refuse to love right or if you numb yourself whenever you mourn and you don't experience it and pay that, attention to that's it, interesting but. it does seem like mourning the deeper you love and the more you love the more you're going to mourn because things are going to happen right your but, loved ones but the deeper you love and the more you love the more you're going to experience joy uh-huh, so i mean right. more life that is really life so you know it, you have to kind of make this decision if you're there's a risk there's a there's a gigantic risk in putting your heart out to someone, and or anything really. I mean, you, you, even animals, um, right? Not that they will necessarily leave you and disappoint you, but eventually they'll die, and leave you in that way. So I mean, you you risk you risk mourning, um, but the upside to it is is you, you can't love without risk. So is it worth it? Yeah, it was interesting. As I was trying to get into mourn, and then the next one's meek, and then hunger and thirst for righteousness. I, for me, it was really helpful to understand those three using righteousness as the inroad. Because, like, righteousness, like, historically, this is where the word righteous doesn't serve us super well. It's a weird word, you know? It's a, mm. it's a theological... I think of Keanu Reeves and Bill and Ted, righteous, righteous, dude, you know? <laughs> And, and when I think righteous, I think it's some sort of like private piety. Like it means that God looks at me and is like, oh, that's a good person, right? And biblically, righteousness is not just about this vertical relationship with God, but it's a lot to do with our our, our social relationships. You do what's right mm. um, in the eyes of God. You And we have some language for this. For example, you'll hear people say, he did right by her you know, in that mm-hmm. relationship or, mm-hmm. yeah. or he did him wrong, like in a business deal, you'll, you'll see kind of hints of this, that they treated them right the way that it should be that right relationship. 
righteousness is about the, the having the ethical character of God and doing applying that in social in the social realm. So it's a very social world. And and the in in the Old Testament when somebody violated righteousness, then you needed something else to happen, which is the setting straight of that, and that's the word justice, siddikah and mishpat. So for me, what the reason why the more that that unlocked for me mourn is people mourn when they see the brokenness of the world and all the things that that are are happening in the world. And if you see the brokenness of righteousness of uh, Sitaka of of this of the brokenness of the world. You see people treating each other poorly and behaving awfully, and all the suffering of sin that breaks your heart. So for me, it's not like you just mourn because you know McDonald's ran out of fries, and you you know what I mean. It's not something. It's deep mourning because you see the brokenness of the world. If you see that well and you mourn, and let's be honest, you just look at the news and there's a lot to mourn about. Um. You know, it's it's almost staggering sometimes, um, or even in your personal life, people do that. So for me, mourn and righteousness actually they help me unlock it because um, they felt tied to me. You know, okay. yeah, that makes sense. So and then it also kind of ties to uh, meek. How do you how do you think about meek? Because even what word do you use? Because when's the last time you used the word meek? I ha- I haven't used that in uh, ever. I, have you ever called somebody? Oh man, you're so meek. I really see that meekness in you. <laughs> That's a weird word, right? We don't use it. So what words do you use for meek? Well, um, it's interesting. Only one time does Jesus in the Gospels describe himself. And he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart, which that humble in heart is the meekness. is close to the same word. Um, but, and I, and, but when you misunderstand meekness, you think of, you think, I, when, the word originally has negative implications for me. I think yeah, I think of too. wet bread. Ew. I know, right? And when you whenever if you've ever washed dishes in the sink with lots of food on them and stuff, when you know when the bread gets wet, it, the texture of it is just like so nasty. Right? It's just there's there's nothing to it. It's just yuck. And that's what originally I think of meekness is that I think of wet bread. But when you study the word, you realize it's actually strength, submitted strength or strength under control. And what I've, through that studying, what I've started to replace is I now think of a stallion, a strong horse that has submitted its, has submitted its strength um, to the direction of the trainer. And I think... Bit, bit and bridle. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and then, of course, then the horse becomes so much more useful and so much more healthy, um, you know, taken care of, he submits by submitting himself in his strength under the proper care of a good horseman. Yeah. Um, he's fed. Now he doesn't have to worry about finding food or water or um, all of those kinds of things. And, but he, but the cost is he, he submits, he, sub, he, he, he subjugates his um, power. Yeah. To, um, the person with the reins in their hands. And I, that's what I think about when I think about meekness, is, is, is that I'm, is, I don't think Jesus, I don't think when people saw Jesus, they thought of wet bread. No. He was quite confrontational and strong-minded. Um, but that strength was submitted to a plan of the Father that, that uh, made him very unique there is a there is a side of meekness that when i think about it though 
even in light of what we just talked about with hunger and, and thirst for righteousness, I think there are a lot of people who see the brokenness of the world and the unrighteousness that exists like at a national global scale, right? And they feel powerless. Like I can't do anything about this. And that feeling of powerlessness is. Yeah. I don't think that's meekness. Ah. Uh, See, I think meekness is strength that's submitted, not weakness that is frustrated. Ah, that's a good, that's a good articulation. Yeah. So humble is another humble of heart. That's, that's the way you think about it. Yeah, and again, humble of heart is a, a proper. It's it's looking at yourself in a proper way. I see. Yeah, no, it's not it's it's not thinking too highly or too lowly of yourself. It's actually a, a correct estimate of what you. So bring. in That's general, humility. you want to think of yourself as a stallion. That's what I heard you say. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I but a I stallion. Would, under, I would be yeah. I would be less than honest if I didn't say I I I believe that God has created in me strengths and personality traits and um, gifts that give me strength when submitted to his plans are empowered in, in a quite an incredible way. I also think meekness has this idea of saying, I won't, I won't fight. I won't fight for something that's not my place to defend. Um, and, when you submit yourself to the care of the master, then that means, you know, you can trust him and all those kinds of things too. I, and I'm not like this naturally. My, my natural inclination is to defend myself and to speak, to meet, to meet opposition with opposition. To fight. Yeah. yeah you know, totally. I, I'm, it's fight, fight or freeze, right? <laughs> there's, there's only three, there's, you know, I know it's an oversimplification, but it's in some ways it's a, it's helpful to know that everybody you meet is either a fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. It reminds me of our, our neighbor down the street, uh, Jack and Rebecca. Uh, they have a dog. It's a very big German shepherd named Loki. She is Swedish, and so she loves German shepherds. I don't know why, um, but she, she wanted to have a German shepherd. And they had they have a new baby, and so they want the dog. And he, this dog is just big. <laughs> and he they're constantly training him. And this dog, Loki, he is very much trained and they go through a lot of training partially because they know if he's not trained well he can do like a world of damage right i mean literally he could kill another dog he could really hurt another human so they do they've been training him for like a year and a half now and he'll be walking and early on he would like whine and strain on the leash and now they just say a word or two and he i mean he he is he only does what his master says now, if his master said get him, he'd get him. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it, he only he only exerts that energy. He only does what he, you know when the master says. And I think if you if you take a, a, a proper understanding of this meekness, um, when submitted, our strengths are great are great opportunities to um, improve the life of all of those around us. Right. But man, we can do just like. Loki or whatever. Loki, Loki, just like Loki, uh, we can do great damage. Um, you know when we try to take it into our own hands, right? And that's true. Um, in a heartbreaking way. What sure. A, what a what a horrible June it's already been. Um, with with shootings all over the country and and different things, I, I, we, you know, there's there's an upside and a downside to the strengths. 
And when submitted in meekness, which is strength under control, uh, they can they can create great value to communities. And when not, it's damage. Moving on to merciful, which to me seems very tied to righteousness. Because mercy, and the definition I had, I came up with, or I didn't come up with it. Someone came up with it that I don't know that I, I stole. And I'm sorry that I, I don't know who it was. It was some commentary. And uh, uh, mercy, and I want to know what your thought is on, on mercy. Mercy is an act of care and compassion done to help someone who's hurting. Mm. Uh, that was the definition I had. Do you have a different or a similar or a slightly different definition for mercy when you think about it? Yeah, um, mercy um, for me is not getting what you deserve. That's a mercy. And then grace is getting what you don't deserve. So they're they're so, so an grace act and of, mercy. An act of mercy is giving somebody something that they don't deserve. Yeah, out of goodness. So mer- out of just kindness, meekness, you know, just value that you place on that person. Um, and you extend that mercy because you've already had mercy ex- extended to you. Someone who is under the care of a merciful father should be the first to extend mercy. I wish it were true of us more. Uh. We, we are not... Um, American as, American, Americans as a culture are not merciful. Um, hmm. Let me think about that for a sec. We are justice. We, and by justice we mean just us. <laughs> we want we want all the good for us, um, but I don't see that we are merciful. So, give me an example of uh, how mercy could be played out in just human relationships. Yeah, it's extending a kindness when it's not deserved. I mean, you come at me with some kind of an accusation, and I respond in kindness. Um, that's mercy. Um, uh, you know, you you get caught in a certain situation and um, you deserve to be punished. And I instead, I step in where and either help take some of your punishment or remove your punishment from you. And I extend mercy from you. The, 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 these kinds of skills are actually going on all the time. Um, because we're so broken that we don't even really recognize it. And we say things, like even in this time together, there's a chance that I've said something that you thought, I don't really, I don't really agree with that. It's not that big a deal. Um, so I'll just, I'll just let it go. And that's not, that's not a weakness. That's a kindness, right? It, it, and, and you're extending that kindness because it's not... The, otherwise, if we, just, if we stopped every time we disagreed <laughs> yeah. and, and argued about the use of a certain word... Oh my gosh! You know, it would be tough for us to even get sentences together. Right. So, um, mercy is actually much more common than we think, but it's always, uh, whenever it's socially visible, it's it's so beautiful because it's so rare. But it's actually going on all the time. Yeah, I'm thinking, what's the opposite of mercy? I have a word in my head. I want. I wonder what's the opposite of mercy in your mind when you think about and the opposite negative virtue. I have a word in my head. Give me your word. Cruel. Cruel? Yeah, if mercy is um, not getting what you deserve, um, then cruel is pretty close. Cruel is, well, or it's almost justice. I mean, in some ways, it's justice. I mean, you get what you deserve. 
Hmm. It's a it's karma. <laughs> yeah. What's the opposite of mercy? Karma. <laughs> yeah, but a there's a there's thing. a propositional position of your heart towards someone when you're merciful to them. It goes out to them. Yeah. Like w- when you see Jesus, his heart was moved with compassion. Like there's a sense, and the, the word compassion and mercy are kind of, for me, they're kind of linked. And mm-hmm. so the opposite of removing all compassion, or the or, or is inflicting. Um, yeah. And so that's yeah. kind of how I word. thought about it. Yeah. Uh, and it it's super true that the world is cruel, and 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 graceless, merciless, mean, mean, yeah, mean spirited. Yeah. And so Jesus says the kingdom is is like this. Uh, next. Oh, hold on. I'm losing. <laughs> what's next up? Uh, pure in heart. Pure in heart. This is the only time in the New Testament, um, or then Jesus's talk. Hold on, let me make sure this is right. This is the one time in the New Testament where purity is predicated to the heart. Um, mm. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the term "pure in heart"? Yeah, it's the it's the one that seems least attainable. Oh. Yeah, because purity. How could right. we be perfectly can, pure? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. the one that, as you read through them, you go, ha. Ah, I'm not sure what he means there. If it, if this is a to-do list, I, I'm not sure I can ever achieve that. And, of course, this is one of those that where it says, it must not be a, con, a to-do list. Right. Well, it's interesting. Matthew's so Jewish, right? And purity is tied to being cleansed of impurity. And that, of course, goes to the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement... Uh, the people could meet with God and he would like literally with the blood of there's two goats. Yeah. One goat is for the cleansing. And that cleansing means that you're now all the impurities is gone are gone. You're cleansed with the blood of this goat. And then the other one is you're forgiven. And now we can enter into communion with God. So there's a cleansing and a forgiveness. Matthew had to have that, um, in mind, yeah, and, it, and it was much more attainable then. When Jesus flips the chart on the, when we when we start into the rest of chapter five, and he's going to say, "You know what? Uh, you guys have misinterpreted the law." Oh yeah, the rest of the speech, the rest of the you've sermon. Heard, you've heard it said, but oh. I, but I say, yeah. Um, when he flips it all, we realize that that purity was never really complete. Oh no, yeah. Oh no, it's it's pretty easy not to murder a human being. Most people go through life without murdering a human being. But getting angry and reacting in anger, which is what he's going to say later, and I don't want to step on that. Uh, Jesus says that's actually what if you, that's the heart of it. Oh boy, yeah. So we need clean hearts. Yeah. Um, but in essence, what it what it reminded me of is somebody who's actually seeking God with the the, the center of their being. Like um, the word heart for me, I always translate it as uh, motives or control panel. Mm-hmm. Like their control panel is God. They want God, and that. That's that's attainable. You've seen that. You've seen people who seek God above all else, um, or at least trying to. At, at least for short periods of time. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, but the spirit the spirit does. Well, I mean, here's the deal: is that the requirement is not that we have we have perfect, no, pure um, hearts all the time. That's that was the the necessity for such a complete work by Christ. Right. Yeah. Um, but blessed are the pure in heart; those who seek. Yeah. After God, because they what do, they'll see God. That's mm-hmm. the promise. That's mm-hmm. incredible. That's incredible. Uh, next up, I'm pretty sure is peacemakers. Um, yep, we can camp here for a bit. You, as you were looking through this list, you thought to you were telling me that you think this is actually the one of the aspects of the kingdom 
that's most needed in our society. Yeah, well, uh, what I I just kind of sat back and said, how would I describe the air I breathe yeah. socially? Yes, right. And I would say that a lot of people are hurting. Those who mourn will be comforted, and a lot of people are fighting. And I don't mean literally swinging. I just mean um, in opposition. A spirit of with, contention? With anger. Mm. With with anger. They're, How do you see this leaking out? Like, what are people angry at? Well, I mean, I see it leaking out in the obvious ways of shootings. Oh. Um, yeah. I, I see. Uh, do you, you know how deeply angry you must be to stand in a classroom of young children and take their lives? Um, and repeatedly, yeah. you know how deeply angry you must be to stand on street corners and shout hate yeah. or towards people drive to, who drive are, three and a half hours to Buffalo to a poor black neighborhood to kill black people that are, that are different than you <laughs> yeah, and, and you hate them yeah. and you are, you, yeah, that's radicalized so, hate. Yeah. It's, um, and, and it's interesting because it's not peacekeepers it's peacemakers which assumes there's a lack of peace and you go into a situation of contention and bring peace to bear and that's hard because that means that both sides are going to be angry at you (laughs) because nobody's going to be because you're not on either side you're trying to bring two sides together initially yes that's that's always the risk that you run um but um i can remember i can remember when at one time when i went to africa and we flew into um, Johannesburg, South Africa, and then went into a different country. Um, uh, what was it? Swaziland? I think so. And when we were in Swaziland, the people were so kind. Um, they were so uh, slow to become angry. And what was interesting is, is when we went, we went back into Johannesburg, which is very Western, South Africa is very Western, it immediately felt like home again. And what felt familiar was the anger in the air. The anger in the air, the volume of the voices, the tone of the voices was immediately so angry. And I realized that's my world. That's what I live in. And when I would talk to people from other countries, they would talk about, Oh, I don't want to. I'm afraid to come to America. I'm afraid to come there because there's you, you, y'all are so violent. And initially, I was, I was um, resistant to that idea. But then I realized that, especially when I was in South Africa, that's not true. We are, we are, we, we are angry with each other, and it's it's the air we breathe. We're so used to it that when even the smallest acts of kindness happen. They take our breath. Yeah. You know, we are, you, you just think about it. somebody honks at you. What's your, your reaction's not, your reaction's to honk back. Steve, you know. you've lived, do you feel like it's getting worse? Have you seen this hostility, the contentiousness, the outrage? Have you seen it getting worse in your life span? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always careful with that. I don't, I don't. I, I'm the kind of personality that whatever I'm doing at the time always is the most of whatever. <laughs> right. You're, right? This you're is the, fully, you're fully present you know, now. Like yeah. the Warriors game 
game yeah. two was that's the best game I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, it's the, I'm always kind of like that. Or when I'm when I'm down after something in particular, I don't know. I don't remember ever feeling this bad. So I'm I'm not a great personality type. I think um, I think growing up, we f- I remember lots of fights, lots of tension between race between right. you know different um lifestyles uh, sure i remember fightings in the playgrounds and and fightings in high school they were a pretty regular part of my experience but but never did anyone go get a gun mm. and we had guns back then um but no one ever went to get a gun and and if if there's anything that's different, it is that we we run, uh, you know, we don't just you know wrestle with each other and settle it out, and but we go get weapons and things. And it, that part seems yeah, that seems to be worse. It does well, and not, maybe that's a dumb question. I, perhaps a better question is, what are the kinds of things that are stoking this outrage in Christians? Like I know a lot of folks who say. Um, we're in a war. They use war metaphors um, politically, culturally. We're in a cultural war. You even heard, hear that term. Christians are losing. We have to fight. We have to fight back for our rights. And there's this hostile group. And so, and then the, of course, the other side does it too. They there's both sides of the political spectrum demonize each other. And the problem with when you're in such thick tribal fights is that you start dismissing the entire other side as holy evil um there's nothing they say that's good there's no idea they have that could possibly have any merit there's no virtue in them whatsoever and that's just for, first of all it's false but second of all it it it'll, it almost is like a justification for your hate and it justifies um the outrage you know and so that's not a great place for a christian to live no in fact that place is sin yes that place and anybody who calls it any different is is just sugarcoating they're polishing the turd Um, because (laughs) the truth is is that we are given a ministry of reconciliation yeah and when we're not trying to bridge the divide um, when we're not trying to reconcile differences when we're not trying to be a peacemaker with people who are um, at war with one another when we take when we choose that side now, I, now, don't mi- misunderstand. I think we need to stand for the principles of Christianity, but we do it in humility. We do it in meekness. We do it in a, in a. This is killer. This is anti-American, really. But we do it in a way where we don't have rights. We lay our rights aside in order to serve the cause of Christ, and that is what we're called to do. And whenever I find myself on fully on one side of the argument without trying to bring reconciliation. I think I'm in the wrong. A.W. Argyle, the theologian, said, um, "These this is not appeasing. He's talking about the peacemaking. It's not appeasing or capitulating, but those who actively overcome evil and hostilities with good. Yeah. So it's a very active, um, an active form of, it's bringing people to peace and bringing peace to people. <laughs> You know, the image in my mind is when um, I think it was, I think it was in Manila, when there was army tanks coming down the road, and a woman stood in front of the tanks with a with a flower. 
I think that happened in Manila. And it was just this act of kindness. She stopped the whole the whole procession uh, procession ag- aggression against people where they were going out to to uh, kill people. Uh, it, it, it's a, it's very difficult in the, in that um, certainly we have to have opinions and we have, need to stand up for those opinions. And um, it's peacemaking, not peace faking. Right, you're not pretending. You're not pretending the issue. You're, and it takes great courage. Yeah, for to be a peacemaker, to 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 push into. We've talked about this before on some of the some of the afterwards, where it takes great courage to push into that uncomfortable spot, knowing that if we don't get that dealt with, there's never really going to be peace. But there's a chance for it. There's a chance for peace if we can if we can get this dealt with. Yeah. It's a, the but, Beatitudes are you know you yeah. you can tend to read them and say oh they're just some sweet little thing that Jesus was describing the kingdom of heaven and, and you start to flesh it out a little bit and say how do I live this way now in this world that is anti Beatitude so yeah and it's you see how difficult it is it reminds me for me the word peace and the word shalom um, mm-hmm. you know this this beautiful old Hebrew word which means right relationship with God and with others, you know, and with yourself, um, working for that for other people. And it, the, the verse that you quoted, Steve, was Second uh, Corinthians 5, uh, 18 and 19, where Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, God, was reconciling the world to himself not counting trespasses against them, and entrusting us with the ministry, the message of reconciliation. That's what Paul is saying. He's this is an ambassadorship of forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah, and that's a that's a big deal. Not throwing kerosene on, seeking to understand, getting yeah. And that there's probably there's probably a whole other sermon or four, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then lastly, he goes into persecution. Um, two two kind of verses. Um, where he talks about you're going to be hated if you do this. Yeah. And that just makes sense to me because if the world is flowing in one direction and you're going in the other direction trying to bring righteousness, uh, trying to bring peace between hostility, trying to be um, uh, uh, humble in a world full of arrogance, uh, they're going to, trying to bring truth in a world of lies, uh, it's not going to, it, it's not going to go well. <laughs> no, it won't go well because... You're coming with the spirit of humility, but when properly done, those who are against you will see it as arrogance. It's yeah. the strangest thing. They'll flip it around and and use you. You're trying to to make peace, and they will accuse you of compromise. Um, and they'll say all sorts of evil things against you. They will. You. They will. And yeah. so, um, you've got to be in a situation where you say, "Okay, I I can, I can do this." It's always nice to get accolades and some encouragement from some people, but, but, but you're, you're going to get very little of that. That's why the community of Christ is so important, because as we go out and we live out a beatitude life, I mean, it's going to slap us around. and We need a safe place to come back in and say, wow, I tried to, I tried to mourn with those who were mourning and and I tried to, you know, keep the peace and, and make peace here. And, and I mean, I just got crushed. Right. And, and I'm, I'm talking about literally things like I got demoted. I lost my job. I got written up. Um, you know, I've, it cost me. Right. 
And the, the, the imperatives, there's no, interestingly enough, all the way through these first verses in the Beatitudes, there's no imperative commands. Jesus doesn't give any imperative commands until the very end where he says, rejoice, rejoice and be glad. Yeah. Those are the two imperatives that show Somehow up. Somehow you'll find joy in persecution. That This is insane, right? This is upside down. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. And the, it, we'll find joy. This is how the prophets were treated. This is how Jesus was treated. Um. Why would we expect less? Why would we expect differently? Right. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. It's a. It's a. It's a. Um, it's a humbling thing to preach it. You and I talked yeah. about this a little bit last week. It's just such. It is some of the highest expression of religious thought, and in my opinion, the highest expression of religious thought ever. In recorded ever right yeah. and um we're going to take a couple of weeks and talk about it yeah and do the best we can and we'll learn hopefully people will learn and we'll be changed by it but it's just a beautiful beautiful um putting together of thoughts yeah i was thinking about this um these nine sayings are like a mosaic and i i, I wanted to close with this uh, if each of these is like a little piece of a stained glass window and the whole thing is like a picture. Hmm. Um, who was poor in spirit? Who was born into poverty? Who mourned? Who was a man acquainted with suffering? Who knew sorrow and mourned at the state of the world? Who was meek and gentle and humble and lowly? And like Moses, though he was important, didn't lord that over people, but was gentle. Who hunger and thirsted for righteousness and wanted nothing more than people to be in right relationship with each other and with God? And who set things right? Who showed mercy? Who showed small acts of compassion on people who were hurting? Who was pure in heart? Who was pure and cleansed and perfect all the way to the, to the bottom? No hidden motives, just love of God and love of others. Who was a peacemaker and inserted himself into the conflict that he didn't start to bring about peace mm. between people? Who was persecuted and hated, though he did nothing wrong? Because his light exposed evil deeds, who was eventually executed? Like, these are all pictures of Jesus. That's my Jesus. That's, how could you not run after this man? Yeah, and remember, this, this teaching's fairly early on, but once, once crucified and then resurrected, it, it was like, oh, he, he was writing autobiographical stuff. Oh, he's explaining how he will be. And it, it must have just been such a, Matthew must have gone crazy recognizing the similarities and how Jesus, all of those things were pointing to him. Yeah. And that's what he wants to birth in us. Yeah. Uh, oof. Uh, well, thanks Steve for, I mean, this is just like what, 13 verses. <laughs> it's not, yeah. we, we took two weeks on that. We're going to uh, spend a couple more weeks going through the rest of this section of Matthew five. We're going to spend five more weeks on Matthew six. Uh, and and that yeah, should be great. <laughs> it's good. It's going to be a great summer. Yeah. It's really fun. So thanks for stopping by and I'm glad Dana's back. Because now you are comforted. Blessed are you who mourn. I know. Because you're comforted. I don't mind. I, she, <laughs> it's fine for her to go away and spend time with family, but I sure do miss her. <laughs> okay. Well, we will see you next week. Yeah. All right. Bye. Just want to say thanks to everybody for stopping by and listening. Also, join us next week when we continue in the book of Matthew. We're going to go into this incredible teaching of Jesus where he calls his followers to be salt and light. I'm going to be here with a very special guest, Ruth Nazanin, who is our college 
crew director. She also works with the youth and young adults. She's incredible. She's going to be stopping by and sharing a little bit about what it means to be salt and light as we look at Father's Day, too, and celebrate that. So join us for that next week, and we will see you soon.